This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. It's time for bookings. Welcome to Bookends with Ruth Todd and Moran Rat. And again, well, I mean, every time we have two very, very different books. I think, and mm, I think that's why people enjoy the program because they tell us that. Yeah. You yeah. Know, the, and how the many talented New Zealand writers do we have? Well, Tessa Duda, I haven't talked to Tessa Duda for a long, long time, but one of her books has um, been republished 40 years later. Yeah, and it's a, it's a classic, isn't it? A New Zealand children's classic. And I'm talking to a first-time writer who's written an intriguing book about uh, Mona Vale and the Goff family. Come Back to Mona Vale started life as an essay that won the 2020 Landfall Essay Competition. The success of this essay encouraged the writer Alexander McKinnon to expand his work into a full-length family memoir, which has had further acclamation by being long-listed for this year's Ockham New Zealand Book Awards in the non-fiction category. Alex, I'm not sure whether my categorisation of your book as a family memoir does um, does it credit. How would you define it? Uh, I think the family memoir is possibly the easiest way to do it. I mean, it's, otherwise, it's a bit of a, a it's a, a narrative um, uh, history. I mean, there's me in the story, but it is reaching back, um, I, I guess, about seventy or eighty years. Um, so it's focusing on family members, but um, it's also a little bit, from my point of view, I thought it was a, a there's a bit of detection in there because I was trying to discover things that I wasn't entirely aware of. Um, Sorry, that probably doesn't help. It doesn't fall easily into one category, maybe. No, but it's that element of you going back into your family history um, and then the discoveries that you make that keeps the tension in the book. So, you know, well, I mean, people can have tensions in books that don't have that kind of mystery, but it was critical that you kept that... um, the evolving mystery um, present as you, you know, um, uh, crafted your narrative. Yeah, and I was was thinking about, I mean, I think I would have ideally uh, written it without the narrator, which is sort of a, just a better version of myself um, in there. But as I was working, as I was working on bits and pieces of it, it sort of felt like it needed, um, I needed a, a form of continuity or a continuous thread, and the the best or the only the only one I had was was myself as the one doing the exploration, and so it's written from that point of view and has has me in it, sort of guiding it. But the subject matter that I'm talking about, I guess, is that is more historical. But I felt like yeah, it, it, it was harder harder to get it to hang together um, if if, you, if it does so anyway, but harder to get it to hang together without. Um, yeah, without that, a, a voice that was consistent through it. So it's it's about your maternal line. It's your great great grandfather, really Tracy Goff, who began this um, this empire. 
I remember very well as a small child being utterly intrigued by, um, I grew up in the Waikato, but there were big um, sign, um, sign, not signposts, but there were big placards that said, Goff, Goff and Hamer, and it said nothing else. I had no idea what it related to. <laughs> Found it really intriguing for some reason. But yeah, yeah, I think there were a few of those. I've had other friends that have mentioned that they, I mean, a, a friend who grew up near Dun Sandal, and I think he said there was one down there that was similarly sort of opaque. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, coming to Christchurch, I suddenly realised that there was this um, big Goff family and that they were very influential in, in lots of ways. But I didn't know about the connection with um, Mona Vale. Yeah, and that was it was one that was prominent, I guess, in our well that connection. Although it's, it's in the book, it sort of reveals it's a little bit happens a little bit later in Tracy's career. He was my uh, great grandfather. I'm afraid I'm a bit older than maybe I could implicitly take credit for that. Oh, sorry, I've, I've put no, too many cool. greats in there. No, no, but that, but it goes back to his father and others as well. But yeah, no, they um, he ended up being very successful and then moving into that house. Uh, and so he and, and the, his family lived there um, sort of uh, to his, until his death and then and then beyond that. But um, I, And we'd always, we'd had that in our sort of family law that it had been part of his life because obviously it's a, it's a very prominent location in Christchurch. Um, and I'd only ever associated him with that. Uh, I, it was only sort of later that I realised that, you know, he, he obviously lived a lot of other places. Um, and that had come, you know, only later on, including, you know, the, for my for my grandfather and for his siblings. They, you know, they were almost grown, I suppose, by the time that they they moved into there, or they were into the adult years by the time they moved there. And it's very much about your grandfather and grandmother Owen and Avenel, and um, you had a great love for them, and for the house that that you used to visit from time to time. And it's it's lovely um, reading about your affection for them and for the place. It's very, it's a very important part of the book, isn't it? Yeah, and I think I guess there's a bit, I guess a lot of memoirs like this or first person narratives like this that that start when one's young, start in childhood, have got a slight Halkian glaze over them. Um, so, but uh, I appreciate that. That's you've, you've probably read a lot of books that have that have that in them, Warren. But um, yeah, no, absolutely did, and we did spend a lot of time. Partly because we moved abroad a lot growing up, and so we would come back, and that was a kind of a consistent place that we'd always we'd we'd come back to on the holidays, or come back for, to for visits, um, and then spend a lot of time with them when I moved to Christchurch uh, myself in school, and they would. Um, they were something of a refuge uh, from from boarding school for me, which was very kind of them. Well, I'm sure it was very. They loved that as well. There's a lovely um, quote from Gloria Vanderbilt in here that says, "Decorating is autobiography, because you you know you evoke the way the house was um, well was decorated. I guess all the things in the house, not." Just the decorations, the old hats, the how the how the kitchen worked, um, the organ, the the light coming through the cholesterol um, windows. So, you know, it's it tells you a great deal about the people and the past and and all the all the memories and that you that you you know associate with those things. 
Yeah, and I and that was there was sort of a couple of thoughts there. Uh, I mean, one, I guess, I guess, as a child, you're sort of. I mean, I, I, I remember those things very vividly. Maybe I'm partly um, influencing my own memory, but it's, um, but I yeah, and you, you do take. Um, you do get deep impressions, I think, at a young age from things like a grandfather clock or things that look sort of grand or maybe just grandiose. Uh, and but the, this, this, so I, they, they were, they're prominent in my thinking now. Um, the other couple of things, I guess, I was trying to deal with it is one, you know, this uh, this makes it sound very pretentious um, and, uh, and self-important, but just how material possessions—they're not, I guess, they're not just material in terms of like they're not just representative of. Of value of a commercial value, but there's there are if they've been associated with people, there is a less material dimension to them, and you and you can you can understand why people treat particular objects as if they you know as if they're more than just bits of wood and so on. And I think um, that that was how I felt, I guess, about it. The other side was um, just in terms of the story and the way it's structured was was trying to part of because of that tension that we referred to. You're, you're developing a story. But that relies on contrast, I guess. And so it was wanting to make sure you start off with a, a childhood glaze, I guess, because that's how it felt to me. And that was what made some of the discoveries more distracting or more compelling. And so I guess, you know, you want it, it wasn't not wanting to over egg it, but it certainly that was an image of that life. And then it was, you know, moving back to Christchurch um, in about 2000, well, sort of. 2007, 2008, and then starting to look more into it more now. Then it was sort of just getting at quite a different angle. It was, um, yeah, it was a little bit darker, I guess, than what I, what I sort of naturally knew growing up. And then, of course, the earthquakes came and threw everything up in the air, and that's when you actually started making some more important discoveries, um, getting documents, finding photos. Starting put to put together this this you know different view of of how life had been. Yeah, and so some of that was accidental. I guess almost. I mean, I guess everyone who was in Christchurch then had, was dealing with very similar things, and that you know they're just tidying up and trying to put things back together again. Um, in in my case, it was in a you know we were fortunate enough to be able to move into their house because they hadn't sort of quite been sorted out what was happening to it yet. They died a few years earlier, uh, but was um, but was still full of a lot of their stuff. And so it was tidying. You're finding things in in bags and in boxes uh, that hadn't really been touched for a few years and maybe not so much long before then. So that was certainly part of it. And then trying to go, and then putting around that some actual research or some slightly better, some slightly more formal research going to going into archives and so on uh, because it did it raised some some questions um, and it was just yeah, it just got me quite curious and you I mean without obviously we're not going to give away anything about the book people need to read it because you know there are some dark mysteries in there um, there must have been times when you you know doubted or not doubted but questioned yourself about how far you could go with the story, how it would impact on the people that were going to be in your story? Yes, it's, I guess it, as I didn't sort of know where it was going um, because I didn't have it. I didn't really know about some of what happened to some of the characters beyond that, they, you know, they were no longer alive. But that then sort of ended up, it took me further back, so into the sort of 30s and 40s. Um, and then no one who was directly involved 
was alive or had been alive really for a number of years. And so I, I thought that was ultimately, there'd been enough time had passed that that seemed like you could justify looking into it a bit more. But I, I talked about that a little bit, um, and this seems a very pretentious thing to say as well, talked about that a little bit in the book, uh, just kind of considering reading letters, for instance, um, let alone putting them onto paper. Um, and I guess it's a, a subjective judgment, um, which I felt it was, it was, there'd been enough, to pass, and, be, and then that some of the some of the stories deserved a, a bit of a bit of an um, deserved telling, I guess. Yeah, I think that's the dilemma that anybody who ventures into memoir, biography, autobiography, any of those things, it's uh, it's a fraught area. But it is that you know often it's that that makes the the story compelling reading and i have to say what you've done with your family memoir is utterly compelling reading so thank you oh, that's very kind of you yeah i mean yeah i mean i i i mean the one at the start i sort of say that i've changed most of the names of people that are still alive and really i think the only person there are a couple of a couple of Friends of mine, I've um, probably uh, not quite unwillingly, but certainly um, I've, I've brought into it too, um, and that, so they're sort of visible under under pseudonyms. But otherwise, it's pretty much me from the sort of the living. And so I felt well, at least I can I can take advantage of myself, but try and not bring it too much further forward. So there is, a, then that's that's one of the other ways I'm sort of thinking. Oh well, that's a form of not so much protection, but it's a, it's, it's just a form of trying to ring fence it to a, a period of time that's further back and people can be a little bit more understanding if it's, if it's longer ago. Yes. Well, thank you, Alex, for this book. Um, as I said, it's been long-listed for the Ockham um, Book Awards in the non-fiction ca- category, and that's, a, that's high praise for a first book. And um, it is utterly uh, intriguing to read and beautifully written. The book is called Come Back to Mona Vale, Life and Death in a Christchurch Mansion. It's by Alexander McKinnon and it's published by Otago University Press. You're listening to Bookends on Plains FM 96.9. Tessa Duda's famous book, Night Race to Kawo, has just been published. It's the 40th anniversary edition. It's a classic New Zealand adventure story. And it's a novel that uh, I had never read before. It was her very first novel. She's published nearly 50 works of fiction, non-fiction and anthologies for both children and adults. And these include Night Race to Akawa and Alex, adapted for a 1993 movie. The four Alex books were published as Alex the Quartet in 2019. And awards go on for quite a long time page, so I won't read them all out today, because Alex was the first time I got in touch with you, and I hadn't read Night Race to Carwell before. So let's talk about this 40th anniversary and your abilities as a sailor and the research you did for this book and the Alex books, because you're an amazing swimmer yourself and an amazing sailor, and you lived on boats. Are you still sailing? Uh, yes, I go out with my ex-husband every now and again and uh, race or do a passage up to the family batch at Kawa, which um, I always enjoy. It's a lovely a lovely passage um, up to Hauraki Golf. So, yes, I do that occasionally still. 
So this story um, is a great adventure story, and it's page turner. And um, it's Sam is really I was going to say Sam is the um, heroine, but she is. But her um, mother, the relationships in this book are very um, close, and her mother wasn't so keen, and she felt her mother was a bit strict, and she always looked to her father, who was the keen mm. sailor. Um, but things changed on this night, didn't they? Well, the, the book has a quite an interesting provenance, really. I had never thought of writing fiction, ever, until one night I was up at the family batch at Kauau, and I, I got this idea that I had to write a story about a family that goes sailing and gets into trouble. I was doing quite a bit of sailing at the, at the time, and I was also quite involved with the Spirit of Adventure Trust. That's the tall ship that yes. takes up young people. And so I was sort of into things nautical. And one night up, up early 1979, I suddenly got this idea for a book about a family that gets into trouble and how they deal with it. And the next morning I started talking to my husband John and because he's, he knows the Haraki Gulf like the back of his hand. And had there been any such incidents where a, fa- a father's got incapacitated and the a woman, maybe the wife and children have to carry on. He didn't know of any, but it took me nearly four years. And during that time, I I went to Dorothy Butler with about 60 words of manuscript and said, is this any good? And the wise woman that she is, she said, no, it's not publishable, but your descriptions of the sailing and the family dynamics are pretty good. So throw all that away and start again. So I did. And it took me another three years. In the meantime, we went off to Malaysia for a year and I worked on it there. And when I came back, uh, I gave it to Dorothy Butler and she passed it on to Oxford University Press. And I was, uh, my timing was actually superb because I immediately became um, into the uh, editorial um, orbit of the wonderful Wendy Harricks, who went on to um, do great work at the uh, Otago University Press. And Wendy taught me everything I know about editing because she didn't edit it with me for me, she edited it with me. And we threw out 30,000 words and ended up with about 60,000. And if the book works, it worked then, it still works now. Uh, it's in, due in very large part to Wendy um, because she just pared away all the slab, I suppose, and we came up with a manuscript which did get published by Oxford University Press. Uh, it was published in England and in Australia, and it was my first novel, so I am hugely indebted to Wendy. And then Jelly Bean was the second book, and then Alex was the third one. Right. So it, it was really the book that started my career. So it's so important to see it republished because it's adrenaline-packed and it was winner of the Storylines Galen Gordon Award for a much-loved book. It's always yes. been a book that Kiwi kids have loved, especially yep, ones... I think that's true enough. <laughs> I think it is. Uh, yes, well, I, I'm just so indebted to both Dorothy and Wendy Harricks, who were, you know, my guide, guiding lights at the time. And also I published that um, 
at the same time as Gavin Bishop appeared on the scene. Yes. And also Morris, Morris G. was um, under the mountain in 1979. So we three more or less spearheaded what I think I've always described as not so much a renaissance because children's literature in New Zealand had been pretty uh, hesitant up to that point. Um, but it really exploded in the early 80s um, with possibly those three uh, people at Oxford University Press being, being guided by Wendy. So, yes, that was the start of it, I think, and now it's probably the strongest genre in the country. It has been for some time. Yes, indeed. I, I look back at that time, and when my girls were reading the Alex, um books in, as teenagers, uh, you know, I thought, oh, isn't it wonderful having these books yeah. for daughters yeah. and, um, and books written by New Zealand writers. That was so wonderful because, uh, you know, I'd never read a New Zealand writer when I was a kid. Yeah, well, that's that's just about true of me as well. I don't remember reading much, much by local writers, and I got stuck on Ina Blyton, which I now think was two years that I could have been better spent, <laughs> spent elsewhere. <laughs> but um, no, the I think the the thing with this with my early books, and it's still true now that nearly all my books have been about girls and women, and because I, I had four daughters and I was aware of what they were reading. And when I first started writing Aunt Race to Car, I thought, well, I could make this a sort of 1970s feminist novel about the wife who is, has a husband who regards it as his birthright to go off sailing or playing golf at the weekends and leaving her in charge of the children um, um, without a moment's thought. And uh, some instinct sort of told me that it would be better told as a children's story. So it is a classic children's novel. It's not actually YA at all. It's it's the for that group of sort of say good nine year old readers, eight year olds, through to about fourteen. That's right. So um, I think and I, th- I have to say I've been very lucky with the covers because the original, which I have in front of me now as I'm talking, um, was a. Um, a uh, a yacht drawn by the great Patrick Hanley. Really? And yes, and I'm sorry that I don't have the original to that. I don't know where it went. Mm. Possibly Wendy still has it. Um, but Penguin Random House put a beautiful cover on the latest one. They really have. Oh, I love it. Mm. It looks a little bit like a Japanese woodcut. Would you think? In, yes, it could be. It's, uh, it's hard to describe on radio. <laughs> People have to oh, see right. it. Yeah. But, um, well, it's, it's it's got lovely colours. It's yes. sort of black and pink and turquoise and, and yes, very bright and very um, bright and very yeah, no, it's super. Very wanting to open it. <laughs> yeah, I was thrilled with it when I saw it. Yes. yes, so I'm very grateful to Penguin Random House for you know doing it in the first place and yes. uh, putting such a lovely cover on it. Well, that's right. So, yeah. um, Tessa, you've always had a passion. For, you were a great swimmer. You were. Uh, where did you? You went to the Olympics, did you? Or which? No, no, I didn't get to the Olympics. Um, I went to the 1958 Commonwealth, Commonwealth Games. They were still called the Empire and Commonwealth Games. It was the last one, right? In Cardiff, in Wales, and to everybody's astonishment, no less mine, um, I won the silver medal in the butterfly. So. Um, what an that achievement. Was, <laughs> That's amazing. It sort of ha- almost happened despite everything because we all got a tummy, a Calcutta tummy bug on the way over. It was a nightmare trip in a, in a 
a plane with four engines, four because jets hadn't been invented then, just about. Well, they weren't in common use in 1959, 58. Um, so, yes, it was quite a surprise. But I decided not to go on to try for the Olympics because I started work as a journalist at that point uh, at the Auckland Star, and that seemed to be where I wanted to put my energy at that time. So I so you became were... a swimming reporter instead of, the sw- instead of a swimmer. <laughs> well, yeah. wonderful to have both skills. And then sailing became your thing, living in Auckland, and uh, most uh, lots of people are sailors up there. And um, so, again, you've got so much um, real information in this book. It's, a, it's, it's spellbinding the story. And um, I couldn't, I was so worried about how it was going to finish and uh, reading through it. But there's also some very technical details there because it was an old boat, wasn't it, that you chose? Well, I suppose a boat of its time. Well, I married into the sailing family that owned, and John still does own, um, a Logan 30-footer, which is not easy to sail. It really isn't. It's hard work. It was then and it still is. But... um, I, I was lucky that John is has got a great sense of nautical language and history, and he was able to um, help me in terms of the nautical language. And I think, again, I owe the debt to Wendy, who allowed a certain amount through, not as much as, say, Arthur Ransom, um, and I know a lot. I've heard a lot of men say that they've learnt this, their sailing terminology from Arthur Ramson. But I think there's enough in the book to make it feel authentic, which, of course, is what you always want. I want, um, to, I want to finish, Tessa, with uh, Tom Fitzgibbon's um, review of this book. Here was a novel, yeah. and I quote, Here was a novel written with such power and authority, such authenticity and credibility, that it ranks as one of the finest first novels by a New Zealand writer. This is compelling wow. reading. The very <laughs> texture of the prose reveals the sailor's knowledge and feel for yachts and the sea. The writer's skill has convincingly conveyed the terror and the tension involved in such an accident. And I think it'll yeah. be still being read in another 40 years. <laughs> it's so well, good. I would like to think so. Well, I think... It's, not, it's not all that usual for a book to, to still be in print 40 years later, so I'm, I'm very grateful. I'm so delighted for you. So Night Race to Kawao by Tessa Duda is published by Puffin. It's um, an imprint from Penguin Random House. And join us, Moran Rout and Ruth Todd, next Tuesday on Bookends on Plains FM 96.9.